2 Corinthians chapter 8, picking up in verse 16. Read, read with me, please. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but he himself, he being himself very earnest, is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So, give proof before and our boasting about you to these men. And that last verse is really the main point of the passage. Well, I'm just going to continue and try to speak loudly, okay? The Corinthians are to demonstrate their love and justify Paul's boasting. Those two things, Corinthians are to demonstrate their love and justify Paul's boasting by delivering on their promised gift for the Jerusalem Christians. If you weren't here last time, Paul has started a new section in the beginning of chapter 8. We just heard that read, and it has to do with the collection for the saints at Jerusalem. He's returning to what he had started in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In fact, turn back there with me just very briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes, starting in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is the plan. This is the plan to bring aid to the Jerusalem Christians. Why is that? Why are we bringing aid to the Jerusalem Christians? Well, largely... Because of the famine that we see mentioned in Acts chapter 11, 27 through. Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which would be understood to be the Roman world, not literally the whole globe. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so, in response to this prediction of a famine and the ensuing famine that occurred, the disciples determined, verse 29, everyone according to his ability to send relief. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is, this is not something new. This is not something new. In fact, you see the same thing in Romans chapter 15. 
I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, Paul writes to a church that he's never actually visited. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by the way of you. Clearly, this is a big deal for Paul. It is a prominent theme in his ministry and shows up in multiple of his Letters. The collection for Jerusalem is by far Paul's largest fundraising effort, charity drive, whatever you want to call it. And there are multiple reasons for this. The genesis of the church out of Jerusalem, uh, the gospel being first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Perhaps Paul has personal affinity for Jerusalem because he persecuted believers who were actually in Jerusalem. I want to add one more reason that I think This is particularly meaningful that Stephen didn't have the opportunity to mention last time, but I think it will help us feel the weight of some of this passage, some of what's going on here, and that is the dynamic of Jew and Gentile together. And that's why we read Ephesians chapter 2. Something has happened in redemptive history such that the Gentiles has been grafted in. There has been one man now created out of the two because of the work and person of Jesus Christ. And it's difficult for us to step back into that setting and understand how tense that could have potentially been. It was a very much us versus them situation. And then something happens where all of a sudden we're part of the same body in Christ and heirs of even the same promises. How is this going to work when it comes out in the wash though? Can there be unity and love across such racial lines? And the answer must be yes. It must be yes. That's what Ephesians 2 says. One theologian sums up the weight of this like this. We know from 2 Corinthians and Romans that he hoped that the gift would cement the bond between the Gentile and Jewish Christian communities and that it would demonstrate that Christian unity transcended ethnic barriers and did not require Gentile Christians to become Jewish proselytes. He also insisted in those letters that Gentile churches should not forget their roots or the privation, the lack of their Jewish brothers and sisters. So when we get to the end of this passage and we hear, so give proof, so give proof. And even in chapter 9, that if you prove empty in this matter, you will be humiliated. We are talking a lot more than dollar signs and buying some bread. There's a lot more weight here, it seems. And that brings us to verse 16, which, although there's a chapter break, excuse me, not a chapter break, a section break in your copy of the Scripture, most likely, it is just simply continuing the very same line of thought that we heard preached on last week. Paul is going to, in this section, however, lay down some of the nuts and bolts of how to ensure that this collection takes place successfully. And he's going to do that by sending a little preparation committee there to Corinth. 
And as far as we are told here, the committee is made up of three men who almost certainly, by the way, would have carried this letter. Three men sent to Corinth almost certainly would have delivered the letter themselves. Let's let's walk through this passage and look at the three men on the prep team here. The first is Titus. But thanks be to God, and the but is an odd translation of Kai there, probably just and, there's no contrast. Just And thanks be to God, as, as he continues speaking about the same thing, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own Accord. What is that appeal? That appeal is back in verse 6 of chapter 8 where they're talking about this gift. And they appeal to Titus who has just returned continue the act of grace. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete. And so Titus has an earnest care and he has a willing Service, just like when Paul and Titus went up to Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, they said the only thing they asked us to do was remember the poor, and that was the very thing we were eager to do already. We were doing that of our own accord. Paul's saying, listen, Titus isn't going, oh no, please don't send me back to them. Can I please stay here? I don't want to go back. He says, no, no, no. Titus is totally on board. He's going of his own accord. Yeah, we did appeal to him for this, but he is going on his own accord. He has the same earnest care for you that I have. He is for you. He is so for you. Coming on his own accord. That's the first member of the preparation committee. Titus. Second member in verse 18 embodies every seminary student's vain ministry aspirations. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. The famous one. The famous brother. The brother who is praised or who is famous, depending on the translation, among the churches. And in the Greek, it just says in the gospel. Uh, But that phrase is used in Romans and Corinthians to denote preaching the gospel. That's why it's translated That way, not just like his life in the gospel, he lived a holy life. Hopefully we can assume that. But it seems to be that this brother was famous. He was well known for his ability to preach the gospel. Who was he? Nobody knows. Don't speculate. Everyone wants to say it was Apollos. Remember he was mighty? I think it's probably certainly not Apollos. Because he's already mentioned Apollos in 1 Corinthians 3 to the church at Corinth. He could have just written, we're sending Apollos. He didn't. He's already mentioned Titus, so he can refer to Titus by name. He's already mentioned Apollos. Why would he not just say that? They know who he is. They know who he is. Uh, we do, there are a variety that the scholars debate. Listen, nobody knows. That's the end of the story. No one knows, but I'm doubtful it's Apollos. But let's just pause and say, man, this team here... The, the, the traveling team, you got the Apostle Paul on there. Timothy is riding with Paul, Titus. But none of them are the famous one. This person, whoever this brother is, they are legit. In fact, they are so legit, if we continue reading, that they are assigned to the special task here. 
And not only that, so not only is this guy famous for preaching the gospel, he is appointed by the churches. He has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. So the churches have apparently reached some kind of unified consensus that this very, very gifted preacher should become part of this team that is carrying out this collection effort. This is that act of grace that is being ministered. Why is that though? Why do you add a preacher to the collection team? Here's why. Paul gives two reasons. The first is for the glory of the Lord. For the glory of the Lord. So the gospel being proclaimed genuinely, being proclaimed powerfully, not only glorifies God, yes, but it also clarifies that this is not just merely some kind of altruistic humanitarian effort. What's going on here has gospel roots that go down deep, deep, deep. And you might say, well, Tyler, where's the gospel in this passage? Well, as it turns out, when you're kind of expository preaching, you can only preach certain chunks. But I would say that the gospel is in verse 9 that Stephen preached last week. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Now, by the way, can we just say that is a slick line right there. That is slick. So slick that you might think someone who is a famous preacher appointed to a team collecting money might have come up with it. I I just privately wonder if Paul heard this famous brother on the circuit here, traveling with them, say these exact words. Or maybe I'm just shorting Paul, and he's more of a wordsmith. But it certainly sounds rhetorically brilliant. This guy is on the team for God's glory to make this mission explicitly Christian first. And the second reason he adds is goodwill displayed. So this needs to be an explicitly Christian effort, yes. But they also need to be very careful to guard against the suspicion and potential charge of profiteering. Instead, the collection is is, is clearly to be out of love for the Jerusalem Christians, and these brothers are being sent to Corinth because they love the Corinthians, and they are earnest for them, and this third brother we're going to read is confident in them. So this this goodwill is teased out in the next couple verses. Read with me, because this this ends up being important. We take this course, meaning we take this course, this particular brother being on our team for these two reasons, We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So so let's be clear here, okay? Because of how Paul had, had instructed them to set aside the money and the time frame over which they were doing so, He wasn't exactly showing up to collect the widow's mite or something, okay? This is a generous sum, translation, a lot of money. This is a lot of money. And Paul is very aware, exceedingly aware, particularly in that cultural climate, that there were few ways to ruin your reputation and the credibility of your teaching by then mishandling benevolence funds. And by the way, that principle hasn't changed today. 
So he is very, very careful to guard the appearance of dishonesty. He is candid about not just being honorable in his heart, but actually appearing that way too. And and some people are quick to quick to talk negatively about appearances. Appearances don't matter. It's just superficial. What matters is the heart. But folks, of course appearances matter. I know it. You know it. Paul knew it. Remember this. Appearances without reality is masquerading. But reality without a corresponding appearance is misleading. Okay? So appearance without reality is masquerading. But reality without the corresponding appearance is misleading. Paul is eager to conduct himself in a way that not only is honorable, but appears that way. It's not just honorable you know, deep down in his heart or something. It's discernibly honorable. He is trying to be above board here. And that is partly why this famous brother has been added to their team and likely why he's being sent to Corinth as part of the preparation committee. And so that ends the mention and the kind of extended commentary of the famous one, the famous brother, the second member of the committee. The third is the earnest brother. Verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. Unfortunately, we literally know nothing about this brother past what we see right here. Doesn't have a name. It's obviously experienced. He's been in it with them. He's been assigned responsibility or tasked with things. He's demonstrated himself to be faithful so they know they can count on him. They know he's reliable, steadfast, and this brother has confidence. This brother has great confidence in the Corinthians. So he is earnest, just like Titus, and it adds that he has this confidence in them, and we don't know exactly what that comes from. Does that come from Titus's report? Is he somehow connected to Corinth in a, in a more organic way? It just isn't entirely clear. But he's tested and he's confident in the Corinthians. That is the three-man preparation committee, as I understand it, coming out of 2 Corinthians 8. Titus, the famous preacher, and the earnest brother. And they are being sent ahead, if you recall, to make sure that the collection is a seamless transaction. And so having introduced the committee here, he then commends them. This kind of act of commending we've heard multiple times in Corinthians. Paul saying, oh, am I, now am I commending myself again? But no, you are my letter of recommendation. And the, the idea of establishing the trust of somebody. And this is what he does. And he takes it in two parts. The first is with Titus. He says, Titus is my partner and my fellow worker, both in formal ministry titles, but still ministry titles, it seems, that he uses, Paul, that is, uses for people in connection to himself that have been or are influential. So he has a, this is, notice that's all he has to say for Titus's commendation. It's not quite like the next one, which seems a little bit more illustrious. His, Titus's commendation is, listen, you want your commendation? He's my partner and fellow worker. Those two designations carry a lot of weight for Paul. 
that right there is supposed to be, okay, wow, if yours Paul is saying that you're his partner and fellow worker, that's serious. That means you're trustworthy. It's not just like this is some person that we found who loved Jesus. This is, this is someone who's playing a critical role in the life and ministry of Paul. And he says, not only is Titus instrumentally valuable to me, which he is, but he says he is for the church at Corinth's benefit. He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. He benefits and will continue to benefit the Corinthian church. It's one of the reasons that he's gone back and forth. And they might think, well, goodness gracious, we didn't expect to see Titus again so soon. He just left. He just left to go tell Paul. But here's why he's here, because he's earnest. He's coming on his own accord. He He benefits that church. He makes them better. He makes them better, and so he is sent. As for the two anonymous brothers, he says that they, continuing on in 23, they are apostles. Your translation probably says messengers, but it's got a little number on it, I bet. If you go down the bottom, it says apostles. And they did that so people don't get confused. But they are apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. So let's point out two things here, and I don't want to linger on them because they're not the main point of the passage. It's likely that there was a more informal sense of the word apostle anyways. It isn't kind of that uppercase A apostle. You have the 12, Galatians 1.19. certainly seems like James is an apostle. Uh, Paul, uh, maybe Barnabas. He seems to be referred that way in, in Acts chapter 14. But you kind of have the uppercase A apostles, and it was pretty clear who that group of folks was. And that's why they translated this messenger so people don't get... Confused, because after all, it's the Apostle Paul who is sending these people. Um, and so they, the translators reason, okay, Apostle, someone who is sent, these people are being sent. Okay, so we're going to call them messengers. And so they translate that so you don't get confused. But you should know that there's nothing particularly problematic in calling them lowercase a apostles any more than Paul possibly referring to Andronicus and Hunia as apostles in Romans chapter 16. It isn't clear that that is what he's doing. He might be saying that they're just known by the apostles. But if, if he's referring in Romans chapter 16 to Hunia and Andronicus as uh, lowercase a apostles, that, that's just not a big deal. They are people who are prominent messengers, workers in the church. A second thing to point out here is the ambiguity of the glory of Christ. So unfortunately, it's just as ambiguous, it's actually more ambiguous in the Greek than it is in the English. So when you read that sentence, ask for yourself, what did you think the glory of Christ referred to? As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So does the glory of Christ refer to the brothers, the apostles, these apostles, these messengers, or does it refer to the church, who's the glory of Christ? It's ambiguous. It's just as ambiguous, unfortunately, in the Greek. The, 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 the real reason for thinking it refers to the churches is just because it seems more theologically fitting. And those who adopt that interpretation are pretty honest about it. They say it just seems odd that Paul would call these brothers the glory of Christ. Uh, on the other hand, there are two reasons for thinking that it refers to these men and not the churches. The first is the parallel with 23. So if you back up to 23, look at how Titus is introduced. He's introduced with that, as for Titus, and then kind of has two descriptions. Okay, As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker. 
Then the next guys, do they get an introduction in the two description? As for our brothers, they're messengers of churches in the glory of Christ. Is the, is it, is, should we expect a parallel commendation here? He's, this is, he's commending his team, and so each section of the team gets a commendation. Will we expect some parallelism? It's likely that that's the case. The second is that the phrase can be translated objectively, like the NIV, the NLT, and the NET do. Here They render it... Um, they honor Christ, an honor to Christ, and then the net, the kind of the text critics Bible, is a glory, he kind of combines both of them, says a glory to Christ. These are the messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ, describing them. Um, and so I, I, it's certainly hard, but I think the more concrete reasoning actually rests on the second option, that it is referring to these brothers um, oddness aside, I mean, to me, oddness is a really loosey-goosey way to do biblical interpretation. I mean, is it any more odd that we are the aroma of Christ or the church of Corinth is a letter to Christ? I mean, that seems odd to me, too. I don't know. It's, but it seems like that's what's being suggested. These men bring glory to Christ because of what they're doing in their ministry, partnering with Paul and partnering particularly in this endeavor to bring relief to the Jerusalem Christians out of their love for the church at Corinth. So not that it makes a huge difference to the point of the passage. You probably read it both ways and said, what's the big deal? doesn't make a huge difference, but I've had to step up and make a principled call. That's what I, I would say. And so after introducing and commending this group he is sending, Paul gives his climax. The climax is to everything that he has said thus far in chapter 8. The final climax will come in chapter 9. Um, but this is the intermediate climax flowing out of everything that has already been said. And it probably seems obvious. And that is, so, or therefore, give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. He says, therefore, you've heard everything that I've said up until this point. So, in light of that, Give proof. I want you to give proof. I want you to demonstrate what exactly. Two things. The first, your love before the churches. Church at Corinth. The churches are, are watching. Churches are watching. Jerusalem is watching. You have an opportunity to show your love in an undeniable way. And in a way that, uh, that, that confirms that you understand that there is no further distinction between Jew and Gentile, moreover. That you are one in Christ Jesus. The churches are watching. Don't miss the opportunity to show your love before the churches. And related to that, and perhaps even naturally flowing out of that, is our boasting about you to these men. We've talked you up. We've talked you up in the region. We, 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 we have brothers who are confident in you. They're earnest for you. We've been telling churches that y'all have been saving this up. Do not humiliate us. And in chapter 9, if you look over to chapter 9, it's a dip into Stephen's text. and kind of do a preaching sin here. Look at Stephen's text. Verse 4 of chapter 9, Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready with the collection, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you 
for being so confident. Listen, show your love to the churches, but we've talked you up and boasted over you. Please don't humiliate us and don't humiliate yourselves. Give proof before the churches. And out of that, we get that that main point. The Corinthians are to demonstrate their love and justify Paul's boasting by delivering on their promised gift for the Jerusalem Christians. What do we learn from Paul's strategy here? How can we appropriate Paul's strategy? Because again, I mentioned that kind of the core of the gospel and therefore the imperatives that flow from it is really up you know, prior in the, in the chapter. And that we've just taught on this second half. This is a very nuts and bolts kind of passage. It's, 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 it's unique in one sense, not totally unique. But this is a window into as practical as ministry gets, right? Two things that I think that we can take away responsibly and helpfully from this passage as we look at Paul's strategy and how he approached this. The first is that preaching and prayer don't negate planning and processes. Preaching and prayer don't negate planning and processes. This is a fairly seriously thought out strategy with some accompanying tactics and a time frame and a plan to administer this act of grace. This isn't just like a a good idea. Hey, I've got a good idea. Let's see if it somehow happens. Now, in large part, due to the seeker-sensitive movement overlapping with the church growth movement, uh, where attractional models of church heavily utilize corporate marketing strategies, overemphasize metrics. I remember in seminary, the three Bs, butts, budgets, building. What are they? That's what people want to know when you showed up at a conference. It's like, that's so lame. But you have the emphasis on metrics, and they adopted the language of contemporary uh, leadership literature, which isn't necessarily problematic, but you had some people drift into being more the attractional leader as opposed to an actual shepherd of of, of people. So a lot of people have become nervous about things like plans and strategies and goals. It all sounds for some people a little bit too business-minded. Shouldn't we just trust God? Shouldn't we just trust God to be faithful? Of course we should trust God. You don't think the Apostle Paul trusted God? But you notice that he wasn't praying for God to cause money to rain down on the houses of the Jews in Jerusalem. No, he he has a goal. He develops a plan. He's got a strategy for it. He's got the tactics to accomplish it. This is part of the tactics right here. I'm going to send a preparation team so that this one's a seamless transaction because they've already started collecting, but they're not quite where they need to be yet. And so here's what we're going to do to bridge the gap. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a strategy. Sounds like some tactics to me. We can't get away from the reality that even for the Apostle Paul, goals and next steps are a pivotal part of making things happen and administering concrete acts of grace in the church and in our lives. And outside of that, outside of something like a goal or a next step or something concrete where someone is doing something under some kind of time frame that is somehow valuable, here's what you have. Great ideas that never happen. 
Great ideas that never happen. I think what we see here can obviously be applied at the church level. We've sought to do so. We've sought to do so. We have a a structure. uh, We have an outline structure for discipleship. We have a men's ministry. We have women's ministry. We've tried to create some trellises, some frameworks for a, a gospel vine to grow on. And we haven't tried to create any more than necessary. It is unashamedly minimalistic. We're not trying to be program-driven, but we're not afraid of calling something a program, okay? Um, And so what what we want to do is think, is be thoughtful about how we can look at the people that we have, the gifts that we have, the context that we're in, the time, all of it, and say, what is the wisest thing to do here? So I think we certainly try to do that at a church level, and we're always reevaluating. In fact, we just re-tinkered who's going to be in what children's Sunday school classes. Okay, we are trying to get our structures and our plans and our strategies to accomplish discipleship and the mission of God to happen in our church. And we're trying to get those things to work for us. And insofar as they don't, we're going to change them. We're not going to be a museum to the past. We're not going to continue to do things just because that's how we've always done it. We're trying to work together and, and accomplish the goal in the wisest way possible. So certainly applicable at a church-wide level, but it seems to me that the exact same principle Evidence in the life of the Apostle Paul, and we see it here in, in, in a certain form, is applicable at the individual level as well, at the personal level, the level of just personal, individual application. One author says, in the attempt to make fundamental personal change, you can weep and wail and desire and feel momentum and passion But in order to accomplish any sustainable change, you must also be very practical. The ideas and desires for what you want for your family or your career or your heart before the Lord have to come out of the sky eventually and into what you're going to do tomorrow to make it happen. It just does. And for some people that almost seems just too unspiritual, but it's not. It's wisdom. It's what life looks like lived well before the Lord. And is that and what we want to do is we want to trust the Lord for the results and rely on his strength as we put our hand to the plow. But grace, remember, is opposed to earning, not effort. I've talked with so many people who have these desires, these good ideas for what they want for themselves, their marriage, their family, their children, their time with the Lord. And they just stay great ideas that never happen because there's never any of this. This seems too fabricated or something. You're just waiting for something to kind of organically get better or improve or change just kind of by itself. Well, I'm hoping that this... Here's the thing, are, are you hoping or are you wishing? I'm hoping that this happens. I'm hoping things get better. Well, I'm just hoping I can whatever. It sounds to me like you're wishing, because hope is attached in the gospel in the New Testament to concrete action, and it's anchored in promises. And it, and it isn't just something that is an idea Wish maybe you're wishing that. How do you how do you go from wishing to hoping? Maybe you need to consider that. But if but maybe maybe you say I know I really do want to embrace 
this part of Paul's strategy here and at least learn from him as an example. Are there places where you have any great ideas that you never make happen? You say, I don't know how to make them happen. I'm, not, I'm just an idea person. Can you talk to someone who does, who can help you come up with a plan or a strategy? Maybe you just, something as simple as reading your Bible regularly, spending time in prayer. Maybe you need to get a better handle on your finances to the glory of God. Maybe you need to steward, whatever the case may be. Instead of just wishing that something would happen when we know it never will, if you keep just doing the same things over and over, how can you take some concrete steps, have, some, have a plan, have some accountability, do something in order to see the fruit that you're looking for as we emulate this part of Paul's strategy here. That's the first piece, the first piece that I think we can learn from and thoughtfully consider. The second is embracing multiple motivations for genuine obedience. One author is as candid as you could possibly be in regard to this passage. He's referencing this passage, and listen to what he says. Paul's appeal to their pride to show others their generosity is also theologically dangerous. It's pretty bold to say. He says, but Christians and churches do not always make the right ethical decisions when left to themselves. Accountability to others keeps us from always doing what we want and serving our own selfish desires. Paul assumes that Christians live and act out of a communal context and that they are answerable to one another. The decisions made by the Corinthians regarding this matter will have immediate repercussions for the whole church. Knowing that our fellow Christians are watching what we do may help us be more responsible in allowing God's grace to work in our lives. So Paul gives two motivations for obedience here that are not because of the glory of God. Which for some people seems like the only genuine motive for anything in the Christian life. He says, uh, demonstrate your love. Don't humiliate us. Those are whatever in additional motivations that you have. Let me add a couple more. Demonstrate your love. Don't humiliate us. And in chapter 9, don't humiliate yourselves. All those are supposed to be compelling reasons. And I just have to say that this does not fit within many people's framework for motivation to obedience in the Christian life. A lot of people just do not have a place for this. It's not gospel-centered enough. It doesn't feel grace-infused enough. Maybe it even feels closer to shame language from people. But it's right here. This is what Paul is asking. This is why he is saying to do this. Not exclusively. Already got the gospel motivation packed up deeper in the, in, in the passage. So doing everything to the glory of God certainly describes the goal of my actions, but Scripture, and particularly the New Testament, never asks us to justify pursuing that goal for our actions in the first place only because of the goal itself. Okay? And what I mean, what I mean by that is this. Okay, I do, what, I want, what I do, I want to do everything to the glory of God. But why? Because of the glory of God. It's like, okay, understood. You want to do everything to the glory of God? Why? Because of the glory of God. Yes. Um, but, but there's more to say. There's more to say. There's a more full-word picture of motivation in the New Testament. Christ calls us to a life of self-sacrifice. Yes, 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 yes. But it's a huge mistake to think that He calls us to a mission and an end game that isn't self-interested. Total mistake to think that although he calls us to a life of self-sacrifice, he's calling us into a mission and an end game that isn't self-interested. 
Think about Jesus and riches and how he talks about riches, even in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourself riches here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Instead, store it up in heaven where that stuff can't happen. Which one sounds better to you? Storing up all your stuff here where it gets ruined and people steal it or having eternal treasure in heaven that cannot be taken. That sounds like a very rational motivation there. Paul says it's better for him personally to depart and be with Christ, but he knows that it's better for them that he remain there in the body. And so he is going to continue in gospel ministry. We see that a couple times. Paul says that we can't even imagine the things that have been prepared for us, for us, as part of motivation to endure suffering well. We will be glorified with him, Paul says in Romans, provided that we suffer with him. That sounds like a great motivation to suffer well because the suffering will end and you will be glorified and one day you will judge angels and one day you will have a resurrection body. All of those are motivations. All of those are concrete motivations. We're told not to fear man. Why? Because the glory of God. No, that's not what he says. He says because man can kill your body. But let me tell you what, there's something where God can destroy your soul forever in hell. And so you should fear God instead. Do you not want your soul destroyed forever in hell? Great. That's a reason. That's a motivation to fear God. Even shame and the threat of shame, being outside the camp, plays a meaningful role in church discipline and calling a sinner back. Even our love for God is because He first loved us. So imagine the hypothetical Christian scenario that has zero self-interest at all. And the glory of God is the only motivator. Here's what that picture looks like in thought experiment. You live your life to the glory of God and go to hell forever. Anyone signing up for that light and easy burden? It's the glory of God. The gospel never asks us to make that decision. Christ never calls us to do something like that. God's love for us is wed to an end game that is a blessing to us and that gives Him glory. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not mutually exclusive. So the person who thinks the only genuine motivation for the Christian life, for anything that we ever do, the only one that can be legitimate or you're really doing for yourself is the glory of God, I would suggest that that person is trying to read in between the lines of Scripture without reading the lines first. Okay? You have to actually read the lines before you read in between the lines. Do, we want, we want gospel-compelled, glory-motivated obedience, yes. But when you raise up those umbrellas, okay, there are legitimate structural arms under that that help hold up the canopy. Okay? So the question is this. Paul gives multiple motivations for obedience here. That a lot of people, again, it doesn't fit well. But what opportunities are there for you to perhaps harness different stripes of motivation in your life toward the end of the glory of God? What accountability do you need? Do you need someone checking in on you? or Do you need to make some promises about something? Do you need to commit to doing something? Do you need to remember specific things? Do you need to be in more community? Would that, would that help? What specific measurable time-bound goals do you want to set where someone could look in and say, you failed, and let's think about why and how we can do better next time. What what might you need? How can you utilize this multi-tiered strategy of motivation coming from a bunch of different areas in order to help you be fruitful? Because we see a small example of it here. We will put our hand to the plow and depend on God 
for the strength and the results, but will we be people who do so wisely and aren't so pious um, as to think that we can't look at genuine life circumstances, we can't look at community, we can't look at accountability as motivation for godliness as we press up in it. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for Paul's administrative giftedness here. We are thankful for a Savior who was rich, though for our sake he became poor so that we might become rich and out of an overflow of what we have, give to others and be generous, particularly those who are the household of believers. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who could benefit from thinking concretely, thinking a bit more practically about some of these things coming out of a very nuts and bolts ministry strategy passage of scripture, that they would be encouraged to do so in the accountability of loving community. Lord, give us grace and wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name.